When you're smiling. Hey, you. Bubbly sparkling water is crisp, refreshing, and perfect for any occasion. Kind of like my voice, but in a can. No calories, no sweeteners, all smiles. Bubbly. Crack a smile. This episode is brought to you by Google. Google's two-step verification was built to secure your account and help prevent cyber attacks, even if your password is compromised. That's why Google has made it easy to sign into your account with this additional layer of protection. Just one tap and you're in. Learn more at safety.google. Hello, movie lovers. Welcome to the Best Damn Movie Related Show here on the internet. This is your host, as always, from Movie Lovers Unite, John DeGorio, for today's podcast. I'm going to be talking about my 31 Days of Horror. Now, this is not technically a horror movie, but it did take place on Halloween, so therefore I'm actually calling it a Halloween revenge-type movie. And this movie came out in 1994, and it starred Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son, and that movie is The Crow. And get this, I'm not going to be doing any more countdowns or anything like that since we're so close to Halloween. So I'm just going to be talking for the next couple of days on what my favorite horror movies are up until Halloween. So that's how I'm going to be doing that. Then I'm going to be moving into Paul Feig talking about the dark universe, about what he wants to do with it. Because Universal still has kind of screwed the pooch when you think of it. Because The Mummy didn't do that well at the box office and Dracula Untold didn't do that well at the box office either. So they didn't know what they were going to do with this whole entire franchise. They kind of went on ahead and put it on the back burner. As a matter of fact, they already had Johnny Depp cast as the Invisible Man and some other stuff too. But they put that on the back burner now. It seems like Paul Feig has a way to actually resurrect, no pun intended, on this whole entire franchise, and he's actually excited about it. And I'm going to get into details about what he told ComingSoon.net about the Dark Universe, on what he wants done with the Dark Universe, and what to expect from it. Then, of course, the Grudge remake trailer came out. We'll be talking about that. Then, also, too, some Game of Thrones news came out today, where they're actually they actually canned one of the prequel stories, and now they're going with a different prequel story, which is called the House of the Dragon, which is based off of Targaryens. And to me, Targaryens is the most interesting characters that you can actually have in the Game of Thrones series. And not only that, but I'm glad we're not doing a Westeros type of prequel or anything like that. I'm glad we're going with the House of Targaryens. Like I said before, they are very interesting characters. You actually get to see the rise and fall of the Tigarians. So, I'm pretty excited for that, but I'm going to talk about that later on. I'm not going to try and steal my own thunder from that. But, that's what I'm going to be talking about. And then, of course, I'm going to be doing my favorite soundtracks that I love listening to, whether it's during Halloween or not during Halloween, what's in my playlist. And I hope that you guys actually enjoy that part of the show, because this is something that I really want to incorporate into the show was the music aspect of the soundtrack of how you can get glued into a certain type of movie because of a score or because of a certain piece of music. So I'm going to be talking about that. So with further ado, let's go on ahead and get into this thing. So this movie took place in 1994. I'm talking about The Crow. This movie starred Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son. James Obar is actually the creator of The Crow and the, how he came out with the idea was 
the fact that he actually lost somebody that was really close to him, his wife, who got killed by a drunk driver one day while him and her were actually walking down the street and she wound up dying. And then that was his way of actually coping with her death. So I thought that was actually pretty cool because of the fact that, you know, you have this guy who is trying to cope with someone's death and here he is writing something about death, about what happened with Shelly and Eric. And this could actually be a good coping mechanism for somebody that might have lost somebody in their life. So I thought that was a pretty cool aspect. But I just feel bad too that Brandon Lee also got killed during that time of making this film. It seems like there's a lot of tragic going on with this whole entire film itself when you're dealing with the crow. And I just feel bad that he winded up dying the way he died. But anyways, let's go on ahead and get into this whole entire thing. When you first see this film, it opens up with the cops being at this apartment. And they're on the very top floor where Eric and Shelly live at. You see a window that Eric got thrown out of. And then on the other side, it pans over. I love the way it pans over because it's like, okay, Eric is on this side. Shelly's on this side of the room. And, of course, she's getting rushed over to the hospital because she got raped, got beat, got stabbed over a period of time. And then you also have a couple of other things that... Uh, winds up happening within this whole entire apartment complex where you actually have the cop going, well, Shelley Webster and Eric Draven, they got killed on Halloween night. And the one of the cops said, well, who the hell gets married on Halloween? Well, it's very rare, but people do get married on Halloween. But there's a lot of other stuff that actually happens because Top Dollar is actually the main gangster in this whole entire film. He's actually the main antagonist of why this even happened to Shelley and Eric which is something that I actually like because they even threw in Devil's Night and he's actually part of Devil's Night and pretty much he tells T-Bird what to do, Tintin what to do, Fun Boy what to do and everything and that's how everything wound up having with Eric and Shelly because she was actually fighting something against their whole entire gang and that's how she winds up dead and Eric just happened to be there at the uh, right time at the, uh, at the place at the wrong time because of the fact of the stuff that happened with Shelly, he walked in just as she was getting murdered, and he gets thrown out the window. A year later, a crow comes and resurrects him, and his soul gets carried throughout the whole entire city to put the wrong things right. He winds up going on a whole entire revenge thing on Tintin, T-Bird, Fun Boy, and as well as Top Dollar. And... Let me just say this. The way he punishes those people is very... It's actually very well done in a certain aspect of the way revenge stories are actually are because it can actually get under your skin a little bit, especially the way he actually kills somebody. I love the healing factor in this movie, too. Like, when Tintin's over there throwing the knives at Eric, he's over there do- dodging it, and then finally he catches one of them and he throws it at him, and he even shows that he even can heal through the cut of T- of Tintin's knife blade. And then, of course, he goes, victims aren't we all? He winds up stabbing him and stuff like that. And let me just say this. His death was very well put. And I have to say, the way he ended up punishing him was really good. And then, of course, you have Fun Boy, the whole entire revenge thing with him. But aside from that, the stunts were really good. I really love the stunt work with it. 
the villain, Top Dollar, he doesn't have any layers to him because what you see is what you get with Top Dollar. But what I like about Top Dollar is his lines that he actually says. And he's a very despicable person. And then even his associate that's actually helping him try and catch the crow so that way he, so that way the Eric can't go after Top Dollar anymore is very interesting as well. So if you're into the crow, if you really love the crow, I would definitely recommend that. Even as a graphic novel, it's really good. I prefer the movie over the graphic novel, but the graphic novel is good as well. Especially the dark tones that they actually use in in that movie as as well as also in the in the whole entire graphic novel too. It's all in black and white, and I feel like this movie is very black and white as well because of the lighting, the way they actually had to use the textures, the way the music is in this movie too because this is actually my first introduction to some rock alternative bands. I was 10 years old when I saw this Red R movie and it blew me away and I even loved the gothic feel to it. That's right. We didn't have no emo or anything like that. We had goth. And I love the gothic texture of this movie on what The Crow actually is. And it's a movie that they actually knew the tone that they were going for. They knew the stunt work that they were going for. They knew the target audience that they that at the time that they were going to go see this movie. And myself included. Because I love the makeup with Eric Draven. I love the storyline of Eric as well. And I also love the script of The Crow. So if you haven't seen The Crow, I highly recommend it. It might be on Netflix still. If not, i check out the $5, $10 bin for the Blu-rays on Walmart. Or you can go ahead and order it off of Amazon or Walmart.com. Because that's actually... I actually bought that from Walmart a long time ago for like 10 bucks on Blu-ray. As a matter of fact, this is actually the only DVD that I can actually say that I bought a DVD and Blu-ray for. Back when DVDs were actually hot, it came with like a two-disc set. <clears throat> a one set was for the movie, the other set was for bonus features. And I watched every bit of the bonus features that I could actually find because I was that thirsty for it. And then, of course, the bonus features are actually on this one disc itself, so you don't really need the second disc. But still, I love having both of them in there for like a little flavor. But anyways, if you haven't seen The Crow, check it out. If you have seen it, let me know what you guys think because I want to know what you guys have to say about The Crow. And a matter of fact, I'm going to be talking about the soundtrack in a few minutes on why it means so much to me. But now I'm going to jump into Paul Feig talking about the Dark Universe. This is what he said in the ComingSoon.net interview. He goes, I'm a mega fan of those old horror movies. I call them more monster movies than horror. Which is actually true because they're not really horror. They're monster movies. And they actually have layers to those certain characters. And there's certain characters that are very hard to actually grasp on on where they were actually trying to go with them. Because of the fact that you have Frankenstein who's actually trying to be accepted for who he is. But he's different on the outside but on the inside and everything. He ha- he has a good heart but his attentions are kind of backwards in a way. Because don't forget he's also been spliced with other people's body parts, stuff like that. But anyways, let's go on ahead and hear what else Paul Feige has to say. Uh, he goes, monster movies, then horror movies. Quite frankly, horror movies to me now represent slasher and that kind of thing, which I don't really enjoy at all. I love those old movies like Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. It's probably one of the greatest movies of all time. I love that movie so much. And there, 
some things that I'm using in this dark army. And that's what, he, that's what he's actually calling this thing is the dark army. Now, I'm hoping that he doesn't oversaturate this movie to where he puts a lot of emphasis on different types of characters. I'm hoping he only chooses maybe two characters for this dark army. And then later on, when they want to follow up with the sequel, they can put maybe two more people, two more monsters in this whole entire dark army universe. Because I feel like that you can have two of them and you're not oversaturating it. You can actually make it fit into what you want to do. Another thing, too, is Paul Feig made a couple of bad movies. I mean, don't get me wrong. Ghostbusters was an okay movie for what it was. I had nothing against the casting choice or anything like that. It was the dialogue, the story flow of the Ghostbusters. And also trying to give us homage or nostalgia factor to the original Ghostbusters and not trying to make it on its own without trying to represent the old classic Ghostbusters movie. To me, I think it would have been more of a successful if they did it that way. But let's just call facts out on the table for what it is. You can't just plaster that on the on the poster go, well, you know what, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. You can't actually plaster that on the poster. But as far as other movies like Bridesmaids and Spy... I love those two movies to death. Jason Statham and Melissa McCarthy did a really good job with that movie. I enjoy that a lot. But I'm kind of iffy on the whole Dark Army thing because of the oversaturation. So I'm hoping that he doesn't oversaturate it. But it could be really good. And then especially about how passionate he is about the project is even making me a little bit excited. But also kind of skeptical as well, like I said, with the whole entire Dark Army thing. But here's the thing. But I really want to do James, a James Willish modern day version of a monster movie that is about these characters. Ever to be, and this is what else he had to say. He goes, oh, Frankenstein is one of those characters that, of the most symp- sympathetic characters, even though he does mess up things, he's looking for acceptance and love. And that's what I'm talking about is the fact that, you know, you have Frankenstein who's looking for acceptance, he's looking for love, but everybody's judging him on the outside rather than the inside uh, and everything. And of course, you know, he does some messed up stuff like picking up the girl and throwing her into the pond because of the fact that he saw that what she was doing to the flower, so she he thought that she would actually float. <laughs> but, of course, Frankenstein doesn't know that or anything like that, so he winds up accidentally killing her. And, of course, I'm thinking that he accidentally killed her. But other people might have a different perspective on that. But that's the way that I actually view that whole entire scene. Because when I was little and everything, I was thinking that he actually killed her. A few years later, watching it, I'm thinking the opposite of what actually happened. And then it, then this is also what he said, too. If you read Melly Shelley's book, he's a pure spirit who becomes evil because he gets shit on constantly. Everybody just can't pass the way he looks and turns him, turns him murderous. That's the extreme version of the kind of thing, but I love that feel. I want to bring back that ooky spooky feel back to the movies, but with these monsters, you root for and understand at the same time. I finished the first draft of the script, and I'm so excited about it. I'm literally on fire about getting this movie made as soon as I can. I turned it into the, the Dark Universe people people last week and they loved it now it's going over the heads of universal so we'll see so like i said the universe dark universe people they loved it they gave it the okay 
Now we have to wait and see what the studios have to say and see if they're going to greenlit it like this thing. But if Paul Feige is describing the way that I, I'm hoping that it is, I'm optimistic but kind of hesitant because of his track record lately. But I'm going to give all my negatives to the side and everything once this movie comes out and watch the movie for what it is. But I'm hoping that they don't go with the humor. I'm hoping that they actually go with some darkness and stuff like that for what these characters actually are. Because I'm kind of tired of the whole humor thing like the Brendan Fraser type of mummy movies and stuff like that. As a matter of fact, I remember reading in articles back whenever the mummy was going to be made. And they said, oh no, we're going back to the horror roots. We're actually going to be developing the mummy the way it should be made. And Tom Cruise is going to be in it. And this is not going to be one of those cheesy humor type movies and then we got the exact opposite of what they said they were going to do so i'm hoping that this is not one of those things but we're just gonna have to wait and see now i'm going to be talking about the grudge trailer let me be honest with you i've seen every trailer spliced the same way over the last couple of years it has that texas chainsaw massacre sound effect to it and it flashes and then you see one scene then it flashes again, usually another scene, to lead up to some type of suspense. To me, there's nothing really different with this remake, other, maybe, other than maybe the special effects. Other than that, though, it still looks like the grudge from the original grudge movie, the U.S. version that they actually did. Now they're remaking it again. And I just don't feel the same way that I did back then with this movie that I do now. And I feel like it's just one of those paint-by-the-numbers trailers to, to get you excited for it, which is what a trailer is supposed to do. For me, on the other hand, it doesn't add anything, any type of horror f flavor to me to where I want to go out and buy my ticket. I'm going to have to sell this thing, unfortunately. But that's the way I'm looking at it. And, of course, I love Sam Raimi. I love the Evil Dead remake. I love some of the stuff that he's actually done. But... I'm going to have to be honest. I was not wowed by the trailer. It just didn't sell me. But I'm hoping that maybe the next trailer might actually sell me. But for right now, I'm just going to have to put a hold on it and just see what's up with it. But I hope that you guys actually enjoy the Grudge trailer. I hope that you guys are actually excited about it. And you know what? Go ahead and leave me a voicemail on what you guys think about the trailer. Because I would love to know how excited you are, or if you were let down by the trailer. I'd like to actually know how you guys feel about the trailer. But now I'm going to go into a little bit of Game of Thrones news with the House of Dragon, of the Dragon. Now, as I mentioned before, I'm actually excited for this because of the fact that talking about the Targaryens, and the Targaryens are the most interesting characters in this whole entire Game of Thrones thing. And you know what? Matter of fact, it's based off the George R.R. Martin book called Fire and Blood, and Fire and Blood is based off of the Targaryen, the rise and fall of the Targaryens, and it even goes into the origins of that uncomfortable throne that we actually see in all the rest of this uh, Game of Thrones seasons, and this book is also brand new too, so I'm liking the fact that they're going into something that's actually brand new, and they're basing it off of the book, rather than going on ahead, making a couple of series and then doing their own thing which I don't mind them doing their own thing I enjoyed the season for uh, the last uh, season a little bit but let's just be honest it was kind of lack flattering for me I just didn't care for it but you know if you guys liked it that's fine uh, just for me I was kind of let down with it 
because I just feel like HBO sometimes just doesn't know how to end their shows properly. But it is what it is. We got what we got. But this makes me even more excited to see more Game of Thrones stuff. So, tell me what you guys think. Are you guys actually excited for this Game of Thrones prequel? As a matter of fact, this was actually supposed to, there was supposed to be another Game of Thrones prequel. And that didn't get greenlit anymore. They canceled that one. Now they're going with this one. So, I'm glad they're going with this story. So, tell me what you guys think about that. Now, I'm going to go into a couple of my favorite soundtracks. I'm going into the Crow soundtrack first of course, but when you look at this soundtrack, you have a couple of good bands that's actually on this soundtrack. The very first time I ever heard of Stone Temple Pilots was because of The Crow. It was the first time I actually heard a rock alternative grunge band before. It was the first time I ever heard of an independent group called Nine Inch Nails. It was the first time that I ever heard of a band called Helmet. It was the first time that I ever heard of a band called Pantera before I heard the song Walk. It was the very first time I ever heard of a band called Rage Against the Machine. And it adds in a lot of flavor to this movie. It gives you the representation of what the crow is and what the crow is about. It gives you an automatic feel of this universe that this director, this James Obar, actually created in this graphic novel. For example, you have the Cure in this in this whole entire soundtrack. In this soundtrack called Burn. You have Machines of Loving Grace uh, called. Glodada Tenement Tenement Blues. I'm sorry if I'm butchering it, but that's actually the song where he's in Fun Boy's apartment and you see Eric Draven where the light bulb is hanging down and he's licking it slowly and has like that slow grungy type rock feel to it, real dirty type of feel to it. And that's actually what you want to feel from that one scene and it glues you in. And then Stone Temple Pilots, you can't go on uh Lentium without thinking of the Big Empty, and thinking of The Crow, because that's how I actually got introduced to Stone Temple Pilots, was because of The Crow, and Big Empty was on that soundtrack, and without, and every single time, I flash back to watching The Crow at 10 years old in the movie theaters and Revere in Massachusetts, every single time, and then even Dead Souls by Nine Inch Nails, when that song is played on Lithium or Octane, I'm automatically glued in and having flashbacks of me watching the Crow soundtrack. I still remember Eric Draven going through rooftops and everything else while the cops are chasing him. And you have the helicopter on the rooftop chasing after him. And that whole entire scene is just fantastic. The way the angles are, the way everything is shot is just beautiful. And then you also have Color Me Once, which has like a grungy, violent by Violent Femmes, and I have to say this, I love the grunginess of this song. It is really good. And they also have a band called Roland's Band, which is, has the song Ghost Rider. You have Helmet called Milk Toast. Then, like I said, Pantera, The Bridge. It sounds more like a punk rock song mixed in with metal, and that's just the beauty of what Dimebag and also Vinnie Paul was able to do with this song. It feels like two different types of song mixed together. And it's just mixed perfectly well. And it's a perfectly well-balanced song that just sticks out on the soundtrack besides the Nine Inch Nails' Dead Soul and the Stone Temple Pilots' Empty. But still, those are the songs for me that actually sticks out for this thing. And then, of course, you have 
Medicine Time. It's called Baby 3. Jane uh, Sibri, it can't rain all the time, which is actually the main theme of the thing where the uh, where Eric Draven quotes it, it can't rain all the time. <coughs> Excuse me. But if you're looking for a good killer soundtrack, check this soundtrack out. You're going to fall in love with the soundtrack just as much as you will the movie. And you can't go wrong with the soundtrack. As a matter of fact, you can actually buy this on iTunes for like 10 bucks. You can't beat that for $10. Especially in naming all the, all the songs and everything else that I mentioned in the bands. Come on. Listen to it. Give it a chance. Let me know what you think. Now, I mentioned Disturbing Behavior on my last podcast where I actually talked about the way that the movie is. This soundtrack actually fits in to the movie itself. Some soundtracks don't fit in certain ways or whatever, but th- for this one, it actually does. You have Every Little Thing Counts, which count, which is by Janus Stark. And let me just tell you this. It's an adrenaline rush type of song that you can actually mosh to. And you can actually be zoned into the adolescence of a 16 or 17 year old or 18 year old in high school and just headbang the heck out of this thing. And then you also have the flies, which has like a little small grungy, slow kind of feel to it. And that song is called got you where I want you. Matter of fact, my, one of my friends taught me how to play this song on guitar. This is actually one of the first songs I actually played on guitar and I fell in love with the song instantly and every single time when this song is played on Lithium or Octane, I fall in love with it even more. And I have flashbacks just like I did with The Crow, listening to the Disturbing Behavior soundtrack. Then, well, just like listen to The Crow soundtrack, sorry. Then I also have another song that I love too. It's called, by Addict, it's called Monster Side. It's more of a slow, grungy feel to it. And... Like I said, it also explains the whole entire adolescence of a 16 or 17 year old or 18 year old saying, screw society, screw what your rules are. I'm making my own rules up. I don't care if I don't fit into this group or anything like that. This is my group right here. And that's what I love about this soundtrack. I, only, I know I only listed like three songs, but those are the standouts for me. And this soundtrack is not even available on iTunes, <coughs> but you can actually. Download it in singles on uh, Apple. So if you have Apple, you can go on ahead and do that. Or if you have Amazon, you can go on ahead and download the soundtrack that way. But as for singles itself, I strongly recommend Disturbing Behavior for what I just mentioned. Now I'm going to talk about a little thing called Dangerous Minds. And I, let me just tell you this. This is actually one of my favorite movies by with Michelle Pfeiffer. Not only is this my favorite movie with Michelle Pfeiffer, but this is also one of the one of my favorite soundtracks because, it, like I said, these this is the soundtrack that can actually glue you into these characters and actually fits in well with the movie and helps it flow better and actually makes you erase everything that's going on in your life. And that's the same thing with the Crow Disturbing Behavior soundtrack. But when you look at the soundtrack, like Gangsta Paradise by Coolio. Everybody knows that song because of Dangerous Minds. And another thing, too, is every song on the soundtrack, you can actually go in and dissect it and actually realize that there's actually teens that don't have the best homes. There's actually people that are going through certain things where they don't know if they're going to be able to wake up the next day because of the neighborhood they live in. 
and stuff like that. And that's exactly the kind of stuff that these teenagers were actually facing from one day to the next. And they didn't know how to face society in a young age like that. And you know what? I didn't even catch that until I got a little bit older because of the fact that I wasn't glued into it as, as well as how I am today. But I have to say, Dangerous Mind is one of my favorite soundtracks besides the Gangster Paradise uh, Coolio song. But uh, let me just say this. Rapping Forte, A Message for Your Mind, is one of the best songs on the soundtrack because it can actually glue you in to this whole entire setting and how this, how the characters are actually are. And it even has like a 1950s, 60s beat to it because of the song that they actually chose for it. So if you're looking for a good soundtrack to listen to, that's hip-hop and actually fits in with the, uh, with the music and everything to the movie, I strongly recommend this. I strongly recommend Dangerous Minds. It's actually one of my first soundtracks that I bought on cassette. And not only that, but... I even bought the Cable Guy on CD. That's actually the first CD that I actually bought from Blockbuster. That's right. Blockbuster used to sell CDs. As a matter of fact, I even bought the Wedding Singer soundtrack from them. But I love that soundtrack as well. And, of course, I like Dangerous Minds as well. Now I'm going to talk about this other soundtrack. Now, this is actually a scores and soundtrack kind of thing. I'm not doing scores tonight or anything like that for this podcast i might do this one later but as far as getting myself amped as far as getting my energy where i want it there's nothing like listening to hans zimmer batman the dark knight aggressive expansion there's just something that's adrenalized something that energizes me deep within besides me being a big huge batman fan this this whole entire thing with this whole entire score is just amazing it just energizes you like no tomorrow but that's how i feel about that whole that soundtrack and you can even imagine batman beating the heck out of the joker or going and on the speed race with the cops and everything in the batmobile so if you have if you haven't heard this theme which i'm sure you have this movie came out in 2008 the soundtrack came out in 2008 I strongly recommend the Dark Knight soundtrack because of the Hans Zimmer scores that he's done. Another score I'm talking about that Hans Zimmer did was the Man of Steel soundtrack called Flight. Just the settlement of what Superman is and then him having to fly that whole entire takeoff thing and then as it, as he slowly as it slowly builds it keeps building and building and building and then it just takes off at a whole new level and it makes you excited it makes you amped up it has that same energy vibe that the Batman aggressive expansion has and it's just a beautiful beautifully well done score and if you haven't listened to the Hans Zimmer soundtrack for Man of Steel, I strongly recommend it because I feel like that Hans Zimmer is one of the best composers that we actually have <clears throat> whenever you're looking at soundtracks besides John Williams or anything like that. He's number two on the list compared to John Williams, but still, Hans Zimmer is good at what he does. And now I'm going to talk about Nightmare Revisited, which is actually the soundtrack to A Nightmare Before Christmas. And I love the song choices of the artists that they actually chose for some of them. I'm just going to mention a few of them. Marilyn Manson for This Is Halloween. You couldn't get a good gothic singer like Marilyn Manson to sing for This Is Halloween. 
This is dark. It's ominous. It's everything that you want from a Nightmare Before Christmas uh, soundtrack. I strongly recommend you guys checking out this soundtrack. And not only that, but it even has the All-American Rejects with Jax Lament. And this is on the peak of the All-American Rejects at that time. Now it's not so much. They're pretty much done now. But for what they were back then, it actually hits home with the whole entire Nightmare Before Christmas. Then you also have Flyleaf, which the lead singer is no longer part of Flyleaf anymore. But it, it was able to actually amplify it a little bit for What's This, which is a Jack Skeleton song. But, you know, what actually gets me going, though, is Kidnap the Ki- Candy uh, Santa Claus by Korn. That song is a good heavy metal, null metal, headbanging hit. It can actually amplify me to where I'm headbanging in the car and just having a good time. Same thing whenever I'm listening to the Marilyn Manson part, but this is Halloween. I strongly recommend that soundtrack and everything because of how glued in, how good they actually were able to set the tone for that movie. Another thing, too, is I want to also mention, too, I know that I talked about Nine Inch Nails, but if you haven't listened to the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo soundtrack from the 2010 movie, <coughs> go ahead and check that out. That's actually available on iTunes and also on on Amazon as well. And it, Trent Rinser, the lead singer of Nine Inch Nails, actually composed the whole entire score. And each thing actually co- coincides with what the actual movie is. It fits in with the tone. Even the part where I remember this clock. I remember the clock scene in this movie where Elizabeth is actually in a library and the composing part, the score part, is the t- is ticking. It's like a ticking sound and it, and it actually goes in well together with the clock that's on the wall and it has its own type of theme. So I thought that was actually pretty interesting. It also has the immigrant song from that old Led Zeppelin song. I, I go on ahead and check that out as well. And you know what? I'm going to go on ahead and end this show right now. But if you guys love what I'm doing, if you guys love the topics I'm talking about, go on ahead. Send me a message and everything. Send me a voicemail. Tell me what you guys think. Tell me what guys what you didn't think. Don't forget to go on ahead and share this podcast with other people. And until next time, bye-bye.